Hey, John, what would it look like if the federal government put its full weight against the pandemic? It'd look a lot like what President-elect Biden proposed just last week. Do tell. Welcome to Care Talk, the incomparable home for incisive debate about healthcare business and policy. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the CEO of CareCentrics. Well, John, uh, President Biden put forward a $1.9 trillion plan. They call it the American Rescue Plan. What are we What are we talking about here, John? Well, I, I think I think this is the rescue from the virus, rescue from the economic pain. And there may be some cyber stuff salting the whole thing. I mean, I, I think it's a, it's, it's, it, but it's really about how are we going to beat back the coronavirus with all of the tools of the federal government? I mean, I know you're going to miss your buddy Donald Trump, but what, what's exciting is that President Biden has a plan and a plan that leads um, with federal money, federal ideas, and I, I, I think an all-American solution. John, there'll be time for nostalgia later. But what I like about this plan, it is really kind of a comprehensive and internally consistent approach. And it is a unifying plan. You know, it's really focused on beating back the virus and reducing disparities at the same time. And it really is non-ideological. Of course, it takes some of the longstanding democratic priorities, but it's in the context of a broader crisis. And it, it really says, you know, there's no conflict between getting the economy going and tackling COVID. In fact, you need to do one in order for the other to work. I knew that you'd come up with some thin political uh, shiv that you'd put in there. It, it, this is not about a Democratic solution or a Republic solution, Republican solution. Look, we have a deep uh, uh, a lack of leadership around vaccinations. I mean, David, that's not a political thing. And, and it establishes a clear and expanded plan with more money, more resources, the National Guard. And you know, one of my favorite things, 100,000 new public people trained to be public health workers who can expand triple the size of our public health infrastructure. It calls for uh, an actual plan to make certain that for those people who are going to get sick, because a lot of them are, going to continue to get sick from the coronavirus while we're getting vaccinated, that we have treatments that work. And it also calls out another one of my favorite areas, which is testing, which we have the ability to do so we can monitor, identify, and sequester those who are sick. I I don't think this is about politics. I think it's about healthcare. Well, John, I think it's a a very good plan. And uh, maybe we should... uh take a cue from uh, the new Senator uh, Warnock and do a little ad with maybe a puppy and say all the things that people are going to say, you know, because there will be opposition to it based on, oh my goodness, we're spending almost $2 trillion. Uh, We're going to hurt, you know, we're going to add to the deficit, all of this sudden sudden religion that uh, some opponents will get. We're aiding the cities and the states. We're raising the minimum wage. We're bringing in socialism with sick leave and childcare. And speaking of shivs, John, they actually are going to be yeah, making sure that, that the prisoners uh, get the vaccine and are, are, are safe from COVID. And then are also going to make sure that the uh, undocumented people are going to get the, the vaccine too, John. So, David, you shouldn't be intimidated by the fact that a plan actually captures all of the components of what we need to do, starting with vaccines, testing, and treatment. And the reason why it's expensive is this pandemic is is, is done more damage to the U.S. than, than uh, from a from – a, 
suffering and economic dislocation than most wars. I mean, it, it is a we we need a solution that's equal to the problem, and certainly there's a people will focus on the size of it, but the size of this the the economic hole from COVID is is pretty sizable. I think if you look at the the dollars invested, they really they are investment dollars. Whether it's around rental subsidy and support, I mean. Uh, you know, millions of Americans are well behind in their rent. It includes an integration of uh, the restaurant industry into getting people um, um, food. You know, there's like 15 million people who are going hungry this week, who are food insecure. That number's growing every week. We have the resources to fill these gaps in the economy while we turn around the, the war against COVID. And I, I, I actually think it's a pretty sensible, if at times blindingly comprehensive plan that, uh, that, that, that focuses first on healthcare, second on the economic dislocation, and, and finally on the, on, the, on, the, on the genuine human suffering, whether it's around child care or the lack of health care in tribal territories. Um, I, 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 was, I was pretty impressed. John, let's tick through some of the specifics. Um, So vaccine distribution, that's a big one, right? We need to give credit to uh, the prior administration for Operation Warp Speed and getting two amazingly effective vaccines out there. And let's just be clear, you want this vaccine because it really seems to have almost 100% effectiveness against severe illness. It it prevents deaths, but distribution had been left to the states. Now we're going to see a muscular federal response in coordination uh, with the states and local um, officials, and we're going to see vaccine distribution revved up uh, as it must be. So that's that's one item. John, school reopening. I know you know you never went to school, but uh, there's a plan for a school reopening. What do you what do you think about that? Well, I, th- I think what's exciting about um, the school reopening plan, the kind of K through twelve plan, is through a combination of med- access to medical help, access to testing, and support for the schools will start to return a lot of areas that are hard hit by COVID that have had schools sort of in, in hybrid states or frankly, all remote back to a normal classroom setting. And I think that has a knock-on effect on a lot of essential workers and lower, lower income uh, workers' ability to actually show up at work. It also starts to help a lot of the areas where which were not initially set up well for remote work or and lower middle income communities, where honestly, I think we've, we've taken a, a real dent to educational progress for kids who just can't get access to the resources they've got at school. So I no, I think this is a, um, a comprehensive, uh, a comprehensive plan for a comprehensive problem. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by this. It's massive, but I think it's necessary. John, we're going on, you know, getting into now the second year. So kids will have been home from school for a year. So this idea of trying to get everybody or most people back to school in the first hundred days, I think is, uh, is great. And, and in fact, much sharper message politically than saying, I want everybody to wear a mask for a hundred days or the idea of a new lockdown or something like that. So that is a great goal. You mentioned that, you know, testing is going to be part of getting the schools reopened. And there's also a broader approach toward uh, testing and contact tracing that's also contemplated uh, in this bill. And uh, it also includes making sure that there's not a bottleneck uh, for the, uh, you know, for the testing materials and that they've got contact tracers that are trained to make it happen. I know you've been pushing for that because we need everything. We need the vaccines and we need the testing and the tracing. Well, there's a, there's a three-legged stool to solving this problem and from a health, purely from a healthcare perspective. And one of them is 
the this fen- the phenomenal development of protective vaccines. And I, I agree with you. In fact, I actually got um, on my first dose last week, David. Um, and um, we, we are we all have to be believers, in, and and it's remarkable technology. But it does the country no good with a fifty state sort of kind of maybe distribution plan where each of them is interpreting these differently. Uh, I was intrigued, David, that uh, after Biden recommended it, the, 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 the current administration, and uh, 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 or the, I guess by the time this comes out, the last administration flipped their position and is now going to use all of the vaccines that are available. But that the slow twitch way in which they've, they've, they've stumbled here is, is what happens when you have the medical experts centrally and you don't provide them a plan. The second piece is to make sure the therapeutics that we've developed to care for people who are sick are used, they're available, and people understand how to deploy them. That's going to save a lot of lives. And the third is just this, to create more capacity, to make sure the materials are available, and to make sure people understand how to use, whether it's a rapid test or the, the PCR test, that again, there are protocols and approaches. You know, We have some of the best public health experts in the world. We've developed a lot of these tests Let's provide that information at a, at a state and local level so that we can contain it, we can care for it, and we can kill the coronavirus. So, John, the idea of the treatments, I agree they, they've got some of these new you know, monoclonal antibody treatments, for example, those are becoming more available. There's also a need for development of more treatments, and some of that may be repurposing drugs that already uh, exist, but that's been an area that's been uh, lagging. And even with the vaccine, you know, they're still going to need to uh, treat people uh, with the disease. So I'm glad that that's happening. Now, there's a couple of things in here that don't look at first blush as though they are uh, related to the to the pandemic, but they are. So one thing, John, is to, to take the minimum wage and take it from, I think it's $7.25 an hour, uh, the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. And I think it's something like you've got these essential workers, you know, if somebody's they're told all day long, they're an essential worker until they look at their paycheck and they realize that they're not. So what, what's what's with that, John? Well, you know, we I've been a big advocate for moving up to the $15 minimum wage. You know, we had froze executive salaries at CareCentrics and moved to 15 six years ago. And it's been a game changer for the culture and, for, and much more importantly for the people who's, who, were, who were making minimum wage and couldn't afford, um, you know, a bill, a, a, a surprise bill without risking the food insecurity or, or, or where they lived. I mean, it, it, it's a crime that um, these many essential workers – um, are, are working full time um, in, in in on front lines, putting their lives at risk, and can't even be paid a living wage. So I think that's really exciting. But even more exciting, David, is it calls for the end of the tipped minimum wage, which is really a legacy of Jim Crow and has survived as a way to uh, for for to kind of manage the margin and the costs of restaurants. But it has put restaurant workers really in a very, very vulnerable position. So I think that's really powerful. Say, say more about that, John, because I think, you know, this tipped minimum wage is something you don't see in other countries. So what's 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 the language in pro? The tipped minimum wage is, if memory serves, it's closer to $2 an hour. And it was um, a legacy of the Jim Crow era where a lot of people of color, not all, were in service positions. And the notion was that you would compensate people who are, whether it's restaurant workers or uh, cleaning folks or um, um, boot blacks, um, shoeshine folks on a tip. So there was no base pay and it was a way to 
um, indirectly hold down compensation for folks who were frequently of color. And if you look at frontline workers who were in the tip minimum wage, a disproportionate number of people are still of color. But regardless, it's a ridiculously unfair way to pay restaurant workers. And I, I, I think it's uh, the, the legacy, I mean, the time for that is gone. And I think what, um, what, um, what will emerge from uh, fair wages for hard work is an economy that is fair and that allows more of the, the, hard, the hardworking employed folks who are, who are particularly on those front lines to kind of care for their families and participate in the economy, which should serve as a pretty big boost as we launch from COVID time to post-COVID time and we try to recover our economy. John, way back toward the beginning of the pandemic, when there's a massive dislocation and huge layoffs, you and Toby Cosgrove were advocates for kind of a public health uh, service corps. And I see echoes of that uh, here in the public health jobs program to hire 100,000 uh, people. What's, what's, what's the story of that? I think it's really super exciting. I mean, we've 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 got this enormous we've got this enormous number of service workers who are dislocated by the coronavirus. We've got a huge need for public health workers. Healthcare jobs are going to be one of the fastest growing categories in um, in uh, in job growth over the next decade. With so many people becoming Medicare as the boomers become Medicare eligible, uh, we have an ability to train them right now for a need right now around contact tracing and care for folks with COVID. But then we're also creating a skilled workforce with a purpose of caring for others um, that then will have jobs as the economy comes back. And so I, I think it's a terrific program. Combined service, need, competence, and it fills a gap that we've got in not just in our public health infrastructure, but in terms of caring for our increasingly old and fragile population as people live longer and need more support. And I think it, it's it's a great way to invest in all the human capital that's been, dis much of the human capital that's been dislocated. At 100,000 new public health workers, I think it would roughly triple the number of public health workers we currently have, and they can then transition into long-term jobs. I, I, it's it's super exciting. John, most of this uh, package 1.9 trillion is focused on the COVID uh, COVID nineteen, the current coronavirus. But there's another virus lurking in there, and that has to do with the cybersecurity type of virus. And while uh, you know, while we've been doing whatever we've been doing here uh, in the United States over the past couple of years, uh, the other China virus and uh, Russia virus have been coming in and basically infiltrating the federal government's IT systems and those of private industry. And so there's a belated but I think important uh, investment now being made on the IT infrastructure, including on the cybersecurity side to bring us uh, up to speed on the 21st century. And it's interesting, decided to include that uh, here in this bill, but I think it does go together. Yeah, no, well, I, I don't think it necessarily goes together, but it's certainly necessary. I mean, it, and, it, and, there, and there, there, there's been a devastating loss of intellectual capital in the last uh, four years. I think that if, if memory serves, about 26% of the federal workforce was under the age of 40 when Obama left office. And now that um, uh, Trump is leaving office, it's less than um, 6%. So all of that brain drain of digital natives and cyber experts who are up to speed with new technology uh, puts, put, has, has put us more vulnerable. So you've got $200 million 
just to hire hundreds of new experts to support the digital and cyber defense experts uh, work across the federal government. You're looking at a $9 billion investment to, so that we could build a new IT and cybersecurity shared services uh, uh, force within the federal government. And we're also looking to uh, invest another $300 million in the General Services Administration. M- the numbers sort of are a little bit mind-boggling, but what's interesting is they're investing in infrastructure, in people, and in a comprehensive, again, planful way to build up the defenses we need to protect ourselves from an increasingly dangerous cyber world. And we'll also be handling, investing almost $700 million in monitoring and incident response, which will not just be for the federal government, but will also protect the private sectors. No, I think this is about investing in America, defending America, and getting America back in a strong sense, whether that's in terms of human capital, economics, healthcare, or cyber. So it is. it, it does make sense, David, even though it's you know, a bit of a bewildering long list of, 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 of investments. John, one of the things I'm grateful to the new administration for is the, that we're now putting policy back on the table. And I think you and I are going to enjoy ourselves in Cure Talk, uh, doing what we do best, which is talking about the, the wonky stuff. So with that, I'm going to say that's it for this edition of Cure Talk. We've been talking about the American Rescue Plan. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, CEO of Care Thanks for listening.